come now to Romans chapter 12, which is the, the beginning of the practical section in Romans. And as I've said for, throughout these talks on Romans, from Romans 1 to 8, you've got pure theology. You've got Paul, perhaps at his, at his finest in some ways, certainly at his most academic and his most intellectual, uh, as he goes through the gospel, uh, using a lot of legal language, a legal metaphor, to describe how we who are definitely sinners, who stand in one sense, in one moment, condemned before the judgment throne of God, condemned in the dark, are justified, are counted as right, because we are in Christ by baptism and by abiding in Christ and having the Spirit of Christ. And so we therefore can rejoice in hope of, of the glory of God. And this is all by grace, that we should be condemned, but we, it's not even that we just slither out of it by the skin of our teeth, but because we are in Christ, we are declared righteous. And because of that, we are seen as, uh, as if we are Jesus, because all that is true of him becomes true of us. And so because of that, chapters 9 to 11, I think, form an interlude where we have Israel presented as the parade example of God's grace, as Paul tries and tries to kind of persuade us, I suppose, that this gospel, this good news, is really as good as it sounds. And then, from chapter 12 to the end, we have all these practical exhortations. And this, I think, is where you see the, uh, the importance of doctrine and correct understanding in practice. That the whole purpose of sort of correct understanding is so that we might live a transformed life. And all the way through chapters 12 to 16, Paul is alluding and connecting all the time back to what he has said in, in the, uh, the more theoretical part. So he says, I, I beseech you therefore, in verse 1, therefore because of what? what what's uh, the precedent for, for therefore? It's all that has gone before. That because of all these things, because we are saved by grace, therefore we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable or your logical, it's the Greek word uh, logikos, it's your logical, it's the reasonable thing to do, is to give your life for God. In other words, if we are counted as in Christ, we practically should live our lives in the sphere of him, of being him. And when he says that, I beseech you by the mercies of God, that Greek word translated mercies is only used one other place in the whole of the New Testament, and it's back there in chapter 9 of Romans, verse 15, where, God, where Paul says, uh, quotes God saying, I will have compassion, I will have mercy on whom I will. And in the context there, he's talking about grace. Uh, when he starts talking about predestination and foreknowledge and all that, it's not that he just opens a page and starts uh, writing, uh, writing to us about predestination and foreknowledge, just kind of like he's writing an encyclopedia. He talks about predestination and foreknowledge as the ultimate proof of grace. Because if there is an element of predestination in our salvation, as he clearly says there is, then salvation cannot be by works, because there is always this element of predestination. And he's talking about it in the context of saying that we're saved by grace. But in the final algorithm, if you like, of human salvation by God, that element of predestination is the, the proof that it must be by grace. And that's why he talks about it. And so God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy.
And we said when we talked about Romans 8 that it's almost too good to believe that if you are in Christ and we are baptized into Christ, then we are those upon whom God has had mercy and we are those whom God has simply chosen. And all that's within us shouts out against that, that now surely I must do something. And the answer to that is no, you can't. Because it's not of works, lest any man should boast. It is of grace. And therefore it is by faith in that grace. And the only way you and I who are baptized under Christ are not going to be saved is if we we fight against the determinate will of God. And yes, God allows people to do that. If you really want to spit the dummy, and if you really do not want to be in God's kingdom, then you can just about get out of it. But the emphasis, I think, in Romans is all the other way around. But once God has got his grip on you, you are the chosen. And we are the chosen. Let's make no mistake about that. The calling of God is in the gospel. And we have heard that calling, and it's no good saying we haven't, we have heard the calling of the gospel and that's why we are here and we can't say that oh I'm not called I didn't hear it yes you did hear it it's like if I say I invite you to my house tonight at 6 o'clock well you are invited you can't say oh I didn't hear you yes you did I I just invited you to my house at 6 o'clock tonight now if you don't want to come you don't have to come Uh, but the point is you have been invited and you are the called and there in Romans 8 he makes this a breathtaking, really, connection between being called and also being predestinated, being foreknown. God wants you for his kingdom. That's the, the simple message. And so he says in 9.15, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. And, you know, Jacob, have I loved and Esau have I hated, or loved less, however you want to take it. But one was chosen right from before the boys could do good or evil. And so, by these mercies of God, we therefore are exhorted, therefore, the logical thing to do is to give your life as a living sacrifice. It's not of works, but the fact that we have been saved, if you grasp the wonder of it all, you cannot be passive to that ever again. And your response to that grace that has sort of walked into your life uh, and taken hold of you We can't be passive to it. You cannot, if you really see it and grasp it, just shrug and walk on unmoved. That you and I, who are sinners, will live forever in God's kingdom, that is so amazing that naturally we want to respond. And so here from 12 to 16 uh, in these chapters, Paul is giving us how you can present your bodies uh, as as a living sacrifice. And again, when he he talks about presenting your bodies, this is the same word he's used in chapter 6 three times, 12, 13, and 19, where he says that because we've been baptized into Christ, therefore we yield our bodies, or present our bodies, to God's service. Now, that's what happened in status. So three times in Romans 6, he has used those same two words for present uh, and bodies, although it's translated in many Bibles, yield your bodies. And he's not writing the people who he, he wants to persuade, as it were, to get baptized. He's writing the people like you and me who have been baptized, and he wants to persuade us of the implications of that. That the fact that we are baptized into Christ means that we are to yield or present our bodies to, to God's service. And so, 
in uh, again uh, still in, in verse 1 we're really showing by our baptism that the body of sin has been destroyed we were crucified with Christ and so therefore what are you going to do with your life give it to God so then what is this idea then of a of a living sacrifice well it could be that it's an allusion here to the scapegoat which is the only as it were living sacrifice and it was a type of the Lord Jesus why do I say the scapegoat was a, a type of Christ well in Acts 1 verse 3 we're told that Jesus presented himself alive after his resurrection and that's the pretty same Septuagint uh, the words in the Septuagint taken right out of Leviticus 16 verse 10 where the goat was presented alive before Yahweh so then we then are to be Christ not only thinking oh wow he's done so much for me I ought to respond but because the basis of our salvation and being declared right is that we are in Christ we are to act as him we are to be him in this world and as he was the scapegoat carrying uh, the sins of others and enabling uh, freedom that is what we are to do and you've got it later this is playing on this theme in Romans Romans 15 verse 1 we then that are strong ought to bear the iniquities of the weak but he's quoting there from Isaiah 53:11 that Christ on the cross bore away our iniquities it's another scapegoat illusion so then we are to be Christ to this world of course it was him who carried our sins and not us in that sense but we are to do this in carrying the iniquities of the weak and who are the weak in Romans 15 the weak are people within the ecclesia who have got foibles and hang ups about this that and the other in the first century Roman context it was the Jewish members of the ecclesia who had hang ups about eating certain types of food and uh, couldn't do this, can't go there uh, can't eat that kind of meat uh, you're bad because you eat pork and I saw you the other day buying, uh, buying pork meat uh, that had been offered to idols and all this kind of stuff the sort of stuff that you and I just get fed up with quite frankly when we keep on encountering it in uh, let's say less mature or legalistic uh, literalistic minded believers and yet to, to bear with them is to actually do what Jesus did with us when he bore away our sins on the cross so then you know it does get very very practical and just uh, another thought on that verse 1 we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice to God which is our reasonable service now the, the language of service is very much priestly language that the service of God was really the, the offerings that were made and we are to present our bodies now just think about that we are acting as both the offering and the priest just as Jesus did and, and in a sense still does now this was a radical idea to those early Jewish Christians where, uh, and even the Gentile ones where really the idea of you taking personal responsibility was uh, in religious matters was unheard of what you did was to have a priesthood whether you're a pagan or a Jew you had a priesthood 
just like many people today, will trip along to church and just assume that their spiritual uh, welfare and all these sort of matters are taken care of by uh, the elders or the priests, if you're a Catholic or Russian Orthodox or, you know, the, the arranging brethren, if you're a Christadelphian or whatever it may be. And here, what he's saying is, no, you are the priest. You are the... The offering and the priest. You are to do it yourself. Motivated by what he has done for you. And another thought about being living sacrifices. Now, let's not uh, miss the uh, radical demand of the concept of sacrifice. That, you know, we're not in this world to just uh, eat ice cream and eat pizza and have a good good time. Uh, We are here to sacrifice. Let's make no doubt about that whatsoever we are here to pick up a cross and to walk after Jesus following as it were a criminal on his last walk that, that's what we're asked to do and let, let, let there be no mistake about that this is not a social club that we signed up to that's got pretty good uh, terms or we, we hope it's got uh, good provision for us and our friends and our family and the rest of it if that's how it, w- <coughs> it works out in your church life, that's, uh, that's a blessing. But that, that is, that's not the primary essence of, uh, of signing up to Jesus personally. We are to be sacrifices. And <coughs> if we don't want to do that, there's a verse in Proverbs that comes, comes to mind. Proverbs 5.22, talking about the wicked. His own iniquities shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be holden by the cords of his own sins. If you don't want to be a living sacrifice, you're going to end up being one. Because your sins will end up being like the cords which hold the sacrifice to the altar. So, it's fire or fire. As uh, both Jesus and John the Baptist and Paul make that sort of logical statement. But it's uh, fire, we're either burnt up now in a sense, or we will be in a figurative sense in the, in the day of judgment or maybe a literal sense we are to give of ourselves totally now and there is no wiggling out of that the world verse 2 <clears throat> is trying to force us into its mould, I do like J.B. Phillips there um, the world is trying to squeeze us into its mould, whereas we are to be transformed and by the renewing of our mind, so that we may prove or know what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. <clears throat> so then we are to allow a process to happen. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. But uh, there, there is a slight difference there between saying, you must renew your mind, you must transform, your, transform yourself, Uh, and saying, be transformed. Allow yourself. Because God is trying to transform us, and the world is, of course, pushing the other way, wanting to push us uh, into its form, to conform us to itself. So then, we are not the strong individuals that we might think we are, uninfluenced by anybody else. We are actually very soft and we are very prone to influence. And it's, you know, the quicker you recognize that, the better. But I am not that strong individual, uh, strong-minded individual that I think I am. We are open to influence. 
and the world is trying to push us into its form or mould and the opposite is to be transformed by what God is seeking to do to give us a new mind and this I think connects with what Paul has said in Romans 8 about the work of the spirit right within the psychology of the believer deep in what could be called the, the, the heart or the human mind and it's so that we might find out, so that we might prove what is the acceptable and perfect will of God. And I think that implies that there is a specific uh, desire by God for each of us. That for each of us, I think that implies God has his will. Uh, it may be that somebody should overcome certain weaknesses in, in their character it could be that somebody else or the same person reaches out to that person who lives in whatever it is uh, house number 59 apartment number 3 in such and such street uh, all these things are, are there set up and God wants to as it were to possess us and uh, to, to, to get involved in transforming us so that we might do those things for him and so he goes through here, chapter 12, talking about the different types of service that we have and that uh, we each have gifts, verse 6, that differ. Now, I don't think that it is necessarily uh, true that God simply wants to, uh, to serve him in ways which naturally reinforce our own personality type. Uh, this is an impression which is given by the, uh, the sad mistranslation of the parable of the talents. It talks about talents, and we tend to think that, well, we've all been given different talents, and we are to use those talents. But the talent there is a weight. It's not talking about personal ability to do something. It is a weight. That, that, that's all it was, that some people are given a certain amount, a certain weight, which they have to use. On the other hand, it is also true that God has made us wonderfully unique, and he's not sort of for the fun of it, trying to uh, just make us do things which are absolutely uh, not our cup of tea, as, as it were, um, to, to be sort of willfully uh, obtuse and contrary with us. Although I do wonder sometimes. I mean, I, I look at Paul, and I, you know, he was really called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And he got himself in all kind of trouble because he insisted on preaching to the Jews. Well, preaching to the, the Jews was Peter's job. And you could argue that if actually he'd done what sort of God told him, he might have had a, a bit of an easier ride in life. Um, but anyway, that, that's uh, just a thought. But, uh, you know, we would look at Paul and think, here is the, uh, the rabbi extraordinaire with uh, a very razor-sharp mind. Surely this was the guy to preach the Jews. Not poor old Peter, who they mocked that he spoke agramatas without grammar, um, that, you know, okay, he was Jewish, but he was a working-class uh, fisherman guy who was certainly a secular Jew and not a, at all a religious one. Um, as he says, really, in, in his own letter. So, you know, why does God want to use Paul to go to the Gentiles? Well, you know, we might have thought, well, he'd be far better talking to the Jews. There is an element of that in which God does rejoice to use the weak and the inappropriate and those who are maybe not cut out, as it were, for the job. And I, I see that in, in my own life, and you've probably seen it in 
in yours. Um, I've ended up doing things that I, I would certainly really, it's not me. And yet I also perceive that that was what God had in mind for me to do. The problem, yeah, it's a case of a balance, isn't it? Because uh, otherwise you can end up saying, well, I'm only going to do what I want to do. And you end up almost like a petulant uh, child. And as I say, the call of Christ is to pick up a cross. It is to walk out against the wind. It, it is to go against the grain of our own nature to some degree. Otherwise, our faith in him would be just a question of sort of sort of reinforcing our own natural personality type. And, you know, we're talking here about the transformation of human minds, not sort of confirmation, but transformation. So this may be something we could discuss afterwards, but I just throw those uh, thoughts out there to, uh, to think about. In verse 8, he, he talks about he that shows mercy. Uh, and uh, he's uh, worded it in such a way in the Greek that it can mean both to show mercy and also to obtain mercy. It's as if if we've obtained mercy or grace, which is what he's been on about all the way through um, in the earlier chapters of Romans, then we are to show that, we are to reflect that. If you've received that amazing grace, you cannot be passive to it. And the very same phrase, to show mercy, you get repeatedly in the argument about Israel in chapter 9, verses 15, 16, and 18, uh, and throughout chapter 11, from verse 3 to verse 32. Uh, it keeps on saying uh, about how the Jews have obtained mercy, or have been shown mercy. It's the same phrase. Um, by grace. And again, the fact we have been saved by grace, that we, like Israel, were going someplace else, and yet we were just shown grace when we stood in the dark condemned. This means that we are to show mercy to others. And again, verse 10, give honor to each other. Same word, Romans 9.21, God gives honor on the basis of grace rather than works. He honors somebody as if they are wonderful, absolutely unreproachable and wonderful, but that's on the basis of grace. And if that's how he has treated us, that he not only lets us off, as it were, but more than lets us off, he counts us as if we are righteous and honors us as if we are his beloved son, then this is how we are to treat others, with that granting of, of, of respect and meaning to the human person. And all the way through here in Romans, the context is of an ecclesia there in Rome that were made up of very different people, as you can see from all the different greetings that you've got in, uh, in chapter 16. There was Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, professionals and, and blockheads, and they were all together in the ecclesia. And the point is to, that because we have each one received such grace and honour and stand in the dock counted as wonderful we are declared right not declared wrong and let off but declared right, justified therefore we are to respond in showing that to others and we are to rejoice in hope 
verse 12, as we go about uh, the whole business of serving others in the Ecclesia. And again, this is another phrase out of earlier Romans, in chapter 5, verse 2, because of the atonement, because of the death of Christ for us, we are rejoicing in hope. And so then, we are to serve others with a joy and you think well how can I have joy in serving difficult people in the ecclesia it's really difficult to I don't know take someone home give them something to eat uh, entertain them help them in their practical problems phone up the uh, social department or whatever for them and you think you could do this yourself buddy Uh, you know all that kind of stuff how can you do that with joy you certainly don't get any joy from the uh, object, if you like, of of your of your service from the person you're trying to help, that doesn't give you joy. Doing that kind of work, some people may be so altruistic that they say, "Oh yes, you know, that's a great joy." But and you really spend your life doing that sort of thing, uh, you know, uh, that does not give you joy. So how do you do it with joy? Well, because of Romans five verse two, because the same phrase used there, because Christ died for me, and I have been declared right. And I stand there in the dock thinking, wow, thank you. Wow, I really am counted right. Now what can I do? And rejoicing in hope that although we are declared right now, we shall be, as it were, physically uh, receive the the physical uh, outcome of that at the final day of judgment, which is for now uh, not some sort of enigma for us, but is now decided because we stand now before the day of judgment it's not that the whole thing is a mystery and the books will be opened uh, and then we'll find out and God will weigh up the evidence no, we stand right now in the dark the case is going on right now and we have been declared right and we therefore are coming out with, with joy in expectation of that, of that hope